Born in North Carolina, based in Bellingham, Washington. Broadcast on WHUPLP. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight, This is Dirty White Belt Radio, stories about jiu-jitsu, life, and culture. Sarah Kerchak is one of the most interesting writers about fight culture. In her pieces about MMA, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and professional wrestling that she's written for Fightland as well as some other outlets, Sarah demonstrates a unique voice and a perspective, and it's one that we sorely need, I think. I've wanted to have Sarah on the show for years, and we got the opportunity during a time when she's working on a book proposal. You'll hear about her book proposal, of course, but you'll also hear about how she got her start in martial arts by, of all things, competing in a professional pillow fighting league. And you'll also learn what black belt world champion competed in that league, too. We'll also talk about Sarah's entry into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai, about what she thinks is the most vital storytelling currently happening, and spoiler alert, it's professional wrestling. Sarah also answers a listener question about autistic people who train jiu-jitsu and her advice for them, as well as for their training partners who want to make their teammates' experience as good as it can possibly be. I love interviewing people in jiu-jitsu that are doing interesting things. And there are a lot of them, whether they're world-class competitors, people with historical knowledge, great teachers, great writers, people who have podcasts, or just individuals with fascinating stories to tell. So we're always going to do that type of thing on this show, but I want to announce a bit of a format shift that's coming up. So people sometimes write to us with great ideas for theme shows, like how to improve at Blue and White Belt, how affiliation works, how lineage works, how to be a good traveler who also trains when you're on vacation. And we want to make some of those themed shows happen. Besides, as a lot of you know, I'm teaching jiu-jitsu now, and you can check out BellinghamBJJ.com for more about that. And I want to make some shows that are going to help some of the students, no matter what stage of the journey they're at. So we're going to start releasing seasons of shows with themes like those I mentioned. I think it'll be a really fun experiment. It does mean we're going to back off of our weekly schedule. We aren't recording on Sundays out of the WHUP studios anymore, so we're not going to be releasing weekly shows every Sunday. We are still going to be releasing occasional interview shows because, hey, I just love doing these. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play so you don't miss anything. And if you want to get a hold of us to suggest future show topics, you can email jeff at dirtywhitebelt.com. You can also get at us on Instagram at Dirty White Belt or our Facebook page, which is Cage Side Radio. Without further ado, here's our featured interview with Sarah Kerchak. I love being here in the Pacific Northwest during the summer, but one reason I'm sad I'm not in the Southeast is U.S. Grappling Richmond. When I was living in North Carolina, U.S. Grappling Richmond was one of the best places to get together and roll with all the friends from the DMV, all the friends from North Carolina, all the friends from South Carolina, and of course, Richmond locals from Revolution BJJ, from Upstream BJJ, from Richmond BJJ, all these different folks to get together. It's a great opportunity to compete with high-level people and have a terrific time while you're at it. That's this coming weekend, July 28th. You can register online at usgrappling.com.
So Sarah, thanks a lot for taking the time for, to be on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm both excited to do this and to procrastinate for my real work. So. <laughs> and your real work is writing, which uh, is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you. You're one of the most interesting writers about fight culture that is currently working today. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. So I'm curious, you know, you've trained both jujitsu, Muay Thai. So what came first for you, writing about martial arts or training martial arts? Training martial arts. Um, I have, I think, a unique origin story for how I started training in martial arts. Um, in that fairly early on in my professional writing career, I wrote for the same magazine a man named Dan Lebransky, the mouth, who um, hosted live audio wrestling at the time. So I had started to get into professional wrestling because my now husband, then boyfriend, was super into it in a way that just didn't make sense to me because everything else, like culturally, we were on the same page about, I'd say about like 80% of music we listened to was similar. Um, he is maybe not as into depressing art film as I am, but other than that, we tend to get along. So the fact that he liked this thing that I always thought was just absolutely ridiculous and embarrassing, lowbrow, kind of blew my mind. So I started watching it to figure out what the hell was going on with him and got sucked into it. It's like this modern day passion play. Um, I think one of the most interesting and vital forms of storytelling we have right now. And so I started listening to live audio wrestling, which in addition to covering professional wrestling news was also covering MMA in North America and in Japan at the time. So even though I wasn't super into it, I was following a lot of the, the big names developing in the early zeros um, and respected it a lot. And also, like, I'm a Canadian of that generation, so I was aware there was this up-and-coming kid named George St. Pierre, and I loved him. Um, so a couple of years later, I like had this dream of wanting to be a professional wrestler. I think at the time I said I wanted to be Chris Jericho. In reality, I think I wanted to be Paul Heyman. Like, I just wanted to yell at people and I wanted to be a manager and so it was in fact Dan Lebransky who came to me one day and said um, I'm working on this concept called the pillow fight league and I think you'd be a great fit for it I immediately assumed that it was going to be predetermined like wrestling and I was like yeah this is great I've got a gimmick already I did go, and so I did the audition, I cut this promo that I think was pretty good for like someone who had just been dicking around in her bedroom pretending to be Chris Jericho for like three years at this point, and got into the league, at which point they informed me, oh no, they're real fights, this is going to be awesome. So I got into this league where I just wanted to talk, and suddenly had to like engage in athletic competition, as silly as it was. It, real fights where you could do anything in that was legal in mixed martial arts, boxing, or amateur wrestling as long as there was a pillow at the point of contact. And I was like 102 pounds at the time, no body awareness, like physically fit because I figured out how to lift weights and run, but just like no concept of how to fight or use leverage, like no physical understanding of physics or hand-eye coordination. So, and everyone else was bigger than me, sometimes significantly so. So I spent a lot of time just, like, being embarrassed and losing in bars in front of rabid crowds that, because I was obsessed with heels, I would say shit that make them hate me, and then they would hate me, and then 
joining a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym and got sucked into that for a few years. And early on in that, they brought in an instructor from Shootbox in Brazil. And the women's classes were small. And I got really, really into just sort of the Shootabox style Muay Thai for MMA. And that's how I spent the next couple of years. You were so, probably the only person on the podcast who has an origin story that involves getting into jiu-jitsu via a shoot pillow fighting league. <laughs> yeah. No, wait, I know there is actually a black belt world champion who did the same thing, Melissa Biscardi. Oh, my that's goodness. That's, that's incredible. And, uh, yeah. So we'd love and to get Melissa on the podcast sometime. Because the owner of the league thought she had no killer instinct. And she came to me and she's like, can you teach me how to fight? I'm like, no, but you can come try out this gym I've gone to. And then she just completely surpassed me in every way. <laughs> That's incredible. Can I, can I ask a logistical question about the pillow fight, Lee? Absolutely. Cause, so you say the pill, anything's allowed if the pillow is at the point of contact. So grappling, yes. like if you were to armbar someone. Yes, as, which as was in fact one of my moves. Oh, so, so how did you armbar them? Did you, like, did you have to like wrap their arm in the pillow? How does that work? I would, I mean, if you wanted to trap it, and this would be hard to do, you could probably slide it in between the case and the pillow, and then go with the armbar from there, but I would just sort of position it on my abs, and then, like, present the arm on top and try to go from that direction. So, after you started training jujitsu, you continued to do the pillow fighting league? For a little while, um, and then the owner of the gym cornered me outside of the women's change room. And for some reason, I remember exactly what I was wearing because it just seemed more absurd to me. Um, I was in this, like, tiny goth plaid miniskirt and the Kurt Angle Submit T-shirt that I had chopped up and turned into this really tiny, tight little thing. And he gave me this lecture about how it was time for me to be serious and no one would ever, like, take me seriously as a competitor or a jiu-jitsu fighter. I was in this pillow fight lady. And I just remember sitting, standing there thinking like, dude, you think this outfit is the fault of the PFL and not the other way around? Um, you think this is going to change if I quit? But then I was also super earnest and wanted to be respected and at the time was kind of latching on to BJJ and Muay Thai, not as necessarily something I could do professionally because at the time, my weight class, I think was only in MMA, was only in Japan and I wasn't going like, to run away and compete there. Um, but it seemed like something I could do that was not writing, and I was at a very emo point in my life where I'm like, I would rather physically hurt than spiritually hurt. I would fight instead of write. So I was, like, trying to run away from my writing destiny, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, I, I quit the PFL. I mean, for many reasons, but one of them was to try to get everyone to respect me at my gym. And so after you quit the PFL, and then, yeah. do, what, when do you get into fight writing? That was, I mean, it was probably only a few months before I interviewed you for Fightland is when it started. So uh, so the Doctor Who piece was one of your first, do you yeah. remember what your first piece was that, that was focused on the martial arts? Um, yeah, it was uh, an interview with Elena about trans athletes in MMA. Oh, fantastic. And like, yeah. and was that also for Fightland? Yes, it was. Um, and I think even now, I've only written for like two outlets about MMA and martial arts, and 
almost all of them from Thailand. And now I write for Asian World of Martial Arts, which is a um, martial arts supply company, and I take care of the blog. So anything you see over there is me. One of, the, one of the things about preparing for this interview was I got to go back through your Fightland archive, which I really encourage the listeners to do, because you get the kind of fight writing and fight culture writing that you really can't find elsewhere. And you mentioned your interview with Elena Hardy. Um, you also write about sort of the intersections of fight culture with other aspects of culture, from nerd culture, like the Doctor Who interview that you, that you did with me, um, to your, your fusion of your love for uh, shoot martial arts with worked martial arts like professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, do you have look back on that? And, you know, obviously you're still a working writer, but do you have favorite pieces that you look back on and say, like, I'm really proud that I did that? Yes. Let's see. I should have maybe looked this up beforehand. Well, let me, let me give you a prompt, which is, like, as someone that does creative things, a lot of times the stuff that I love the most is the stuff that's mm-hmm. the least response from, from other folks. And oh, I'm wondering yeah. if that's something that's true of you as well. One of my favorite pieces that I've ever done in anything is um, a personal essay about what it was like to grow up in the Niagara region when um, the schoolgirl killer Paul Paul Bernard was on the loose um, as a child at the same time that Twin Peaks was becoming popular and how both fiction and reality were just about pretty dead girls terrorizing like their deaths terrorizing small towns um, and how I learned to process all of that. And it got almost no response, but I, I think about it often and think like, no, I'm really happy with that one, which is, I'm not happy with a lot of stuff I write. But getting back to Lightland, um, I do really enjoy the interview I did with you because I think that really helped to define what I was doing at Fightland and what I was interested in doing at Fightland. Um, I am personally really proud of, and not necessarily because it's the best written, and I don't even think it's edited. It might be a bit of a mess, but I did a story trying to interpret Conor McGregor's existential crisis through the lens of Fellini's La Dolce Vita, um, which I was just proud of myself for even convincing my editor to let me do, because it was absurd, but also not wrong. Um... And then I was really, really fond of, and I did, like, I am not responsible for anything good in these stories, but I assembled a collection of people who deal with words in various forms. So um, a rapper, a journalist, um, a screenwriter, like a playwright who also writes for General Hospital, who's a friend of mine, and a writing instructor from a university here in Canada. And I did a series, I think, of three or four articles where I would give them famous MMA promos from certain fighters and have them analyze them to see what they were like just as pieces of storytelling and oration. And they had no MMA background, and they just went to town on it, and they were incredible. Hey, Betsy O'Donovan. Yes, Jeff Shaw. How do you like that new gi you've been wearing from Gold BJJ, the Calavera gi? I like it a lot, but I like the compliments I get when I'm wearing it even more. What do you like about it? So, it's a little bit like me. It's minimalist and clean on the outside and a little flashy on the inside. Uh, And what I mean by that is it has this really gorgeous rash guard liner. Um, The outside is super clean, white, ready to be all patched up. But on the inside, 
Um, it has sugar skulls, and it's a super soft rash guard liner, but man, people really love it and they notice, and it makes me feel kind of fancy when I'm wearing it. The other thing I like about Gold BJJ is their no-hassle guarantee for a year. If anything goes wrong with the gear, if you're just dissatisfied with it, they'll take it back, no questions asked. I think that's a pretty good deal, and coming in at less than 100 bucks, I would buy this gi over and over. Plus, if you're a listener to this show, which you are because you're listening to the show, you can get a discount by entering Dirty White Belt 10 at checkout. So go to goldbjj.com, enter Dirty White Belt 10 at checkout, and get a discount on an already reasonably priced gi. Thanks for supporting the people who support this show. That's fascinating stuff. We'll throw a link to Sarah's archive in the comments of this show, so if you're listening, you can check it out if you haven't already. And so we'll get back to the Doctor Who story that you and I did together in a moment. But um, you, you, ta- you know, you mentioned just some examples, and like one of the things that that is interesting about your work is you tackle parts of combat sports culture that other folks don't, like nerd culture, some off the beaten track topics. I'm wondering if that was an, a conscious choice, or like I'm going to be the fight writer that tackles these things. Or do you just write about things that you are interested in and it sort of naturally creates that niche for you? I think it's just sort of what I'm interested in. Writing for Fightland for those few years was hard in a lot of ways because most times I was one of two female bylines that were on stories and that wasn't always taken well. And I got, I think, more hate mail and it's like harassment on Twitter for doing that than I've done anything other than writing about the anti-vax movement. So, and I took it really personally in a way that a writer, you know, isn't supposed to, but can't help. Um, so I was torn about that, but I had a ridiculous amount of creative freedom in terms of what weird stuff I could try there. Um, so I just got to be like the weird writer. Um, but also it just came naturally to me. Um, we never actually did tackle how I started writing about um, martial arts because I got completely distracted babbling about pillow fighting. Um, But it came about entirely as a fluke website that I had been writing for. And this has happened many times because this is what freelancing is in our current age, had gone under. And so various editors on Twitter were putting out a call for all of the abandoned writers to pitch them. And one of them was from Vice's music site, Noisy. So as I was sending off my pitch to Noisy, my husband in the background was just like, you know they have a martial arts website. You should say, hey, guess what? I also happen to train martial arts. I'm a former professional pillow fighter. And do you think you could put me in contact with Fightland? And if there's one site in the entire world that would have been like, hey, former professional pillow fighter who is a blue belt in BJJ, let's take her on. It was obviously two places martial arts site. Um, so I came to it as a culture writer, which is all I've ever wanted to be. I think I tried to be a serious like sports reporter for maybe a couple of stories. And if you want to dig through the archives and find the like live play-by-play I did have been in to fight, we'll see how well that went over. Um, so it always made sense to me to write about the arts in mixed martial arts and write about it as a piece of culture and not try to divorce what happens in the cage or in the ring or on the mat 
from everything that goes around in the world while it's happening, everything that goes into that fight and everything that happens to the people who do it. Um, and plus I'm just super weird, which means that I'm always going to find some obscure lens through which to view everything. I think one of the last stories I ever did before Fightland closed was like I had just in my brain not even trying to be challenging or complicated, but the only way I could express the haunting specter of Ronda Rousey was to bring up Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. I was like, no, this is how I have to explain it to the world. So it just kind of happened. The fact that this stuff makes perfect sense to me, I'm not sure what that <laughs> says about either of us, but but I think that's totally logical and. And you know, you're, you're talking about your, your your origin stories. Reminds me of the great feature writer Susan Orlean, who's written for the New Yorker for many years and has many books. And I saw her speak one time, and she she was like, "I got my start as a straight news reporter covering courts." And my first day as a courts reporter came back, and my editor said, "What well, what do you got for me?" And I said, "Oh, you know, I, I met this janitor who has this totally fascinating life story. And you're not gonna believe this guy. Like, he worked in sharecropping, and he did this." And they're like, that's not what a court reporter does, Susan. <laughs> and then, of course, she you know, goes on to write like stuff that is, I think, much more interesting than the sort of live play-by-play of fighting or, you know, the, hey, this guy is charged with this crime. And so it's yeah. cool that you also were able to find your niche in that way. Yeah, I mean, it was a really weird experience in my life, but I'm thrilled for it. I think I probably grew more as a writer during that period than any other up until maybe now. So, yeah. I want to be sure we talk about training as well, but first I want to ask you, like, to, to sort of uh, um, transition uh, from the writing conversation for a while. Do you have writing goals for the future, or are you, you know, I, I set goals for martial arts, and I'm curious if that's the way you think about your writing. I do. Um, well, in fact, I signed with an agency a month ago, two months ago, um, which is long-term been my dream. I'm currently just finishing up a book proposal for a collection of essays tentatively titled I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was This Lousy Anxiety Disorder, which would be a collection of essays about all of the things that I have done to like look like a successful, high-functioning autistic person and how it has essentially ruined my life every single time because I want to tell my story as a cautionary tale instead of a success story. So that would be my primary goal right now. And then I just, you know, because I'm weird and have been really lucky that even though I'm not a well-known name or anything, I seem to be indulged by editors who respect me and let me write about the weird shit I love, whether it's um, talking about Jerry Anderson's puppet shows in the context of increasing Cold War paranoia or the, you know, importance of catering to fangirls fantasies by Ilya Kuryakin and Man from Uncle. Um, so I would say the number one, like, random, here's something I love that I really need to write about right now is that I want to write about um, New Japan hero Tetsuya Naito as a, the millennial icon that we need in our time right now. So that, that, that's my dream essay right now. See, this is in the wheelhouse of much of our listening audience, I think, as well, because there's a lot of professional wrestling crossover, and I think a lot of people will identify what you said before about the value of pro wrestling storytelling in these times, which we'll get to in a second. But, but you mentioned, you know, you did, one of the things that I like about your work is its honesty, and you, you mentioned sort of the struggles of being a very public autistic figure. Mm-hmm. And so, what, you know, and, and how, you know, both the triumphs and the difficulties of that. Yeah. And so, 
I'm curious, like we did get a, a listener question uh, from an autistic jujitsu athlete mm. who wrote in that, that she sometimes has trouble communicating with her training partners and communicating like what, you know, particularly during drilling. And so I was wondering if you had yeah. general advice both for her and for training partners that want to be good people and good comrades for their autistic teammates. I don't know if I have any like good advice for her because it was probably part of the reason why I don't train regularly now and definitely not the only reason, but it contributed to it because um, just the way my brain would process things. And I want to be clear here, like it's different for every autistic person. I know autistic like fighters who have none of the issues in sparring that I do. And it blows my mind, but it's really cool to watch and to talk to them about. Um, but I, I understand the frustration of not being able to communicate in the heat of the moment. Um, so my advice to her personally would be like, be easy on yourself. I know it's a very well-meaning culture when you're training jujitsu to like, not make excuses and be your best self. And that's all great in the abstract, but so much of like learning to work with your autism in a martial arts setting is not about making excuses. It's about having explanations. And I think it, you just need to be patient and gentle with yourself about that because it's very easy to spend every training session crying in the shower after, which is what I did, and never giving yourself a break. But it's, like, BJJ is so intensely physical and intellectual at the same time, and when you have a brain that doesn't always work in, like, in conjunction with your body in the same way that a typical person's does, you're going to have challenges that haven't been addressed, really, because we don't really talk about autism in martial arts, um, but also aren't understood so just be patient I guess is the short version of that the advice I do have is for training partners like if you really want to help your autistic teammates take everything I've said into account um, and don't in an effort to encourage them accidentally invalidate their struggles because like I spent a lot of time in the change room with my training partners after trying to explain how frustrated I was in sparring because my ability to perform a move in technical training and get it into my body and brain was not easily replicated by doing it in the heat of the moment and not having that like extra split second to process and figure out how to do it and to put it into practice. And all I think I wanted was just someone to understand and say, oh, that, that really does suck. That's a challenge, but you know, you're working on it and that's what's important here. Um, and it often just turned into, oh, well, that's just what other people told you you couldn't do, which is like, again, in abstract, a really positive idea, but just sort of sounds like, oh, no, 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 you don't have any problems, which turns into, well, you still suck because of something that's out of your control. So yeah, it, I guess that's not really practical information so much as like feel good information, but patients would change a lot <laughs> on the mat and in life for autistic people. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I actually think it is really practical information because I think, you know, particularly with something as complex a problem solving enterprise as jujitsu, I think a lot <laughs> of well-meaning people 
immediately gravitate to, oh, but have you tried this? Or, oh, but that's, you know, no, it's not a challenge. You just need to do this. And it sounds like what you're saying is that's, you know, that's something that we need to back off of, maybe be a little more patient on. And uh, you also mentioned, of course, you know, I want to acknowledge that, you know, every autistic brain is different, just like every so-called neurotypical brain is different. So yeah. it's going to be different from person to person, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you recently returned to Muay Thai, which is cool. Um, a return is a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> I've used my gloves in the past week. Don't call it a comeback. You've been here for years. <laughs> This August, U.S. Grappling goes to Philadelphia for a submission-only tournament. Now, this is true submission-only, not submission-maybe, where we go for 10 minutes, and if neither of us taps the other, we go to points. This is two folks step on the mat, and then one of them taps eventually. That's August 11th in Philadelphia. This is one of my favorite rule sets, and I I think that everybody should compete under as many rule sets as possible. It just helps to... Uh, establish all the different aspects of your game, help you improve all the things that you're deficient in. But true submission only is an experience that you should really have at least once in your life. And you can have it at U.S. Grappling, some of the best tournaments around, August 11th in Philadelphia. But yeah, so, but, but like, so what are the differences? Like you mentioned some of the challenges that you faced in your jiu-jitsu training. I'm wondering if you faced similar challenges or different challenges in your Muay Thai training. And like mostly as a jiu-jitsu person, I'm wondering why you, you know, you're, you know, why Muay Thai now and not jiu-jitsu? The real reason is that one of my old training partners um, has two kids who are now old enough that she can do stuff with her life again. And she just randomly texted me to say, hey, you want to try this again? And for some cool reason, I said yes. Um, and she had always been more of a striker. I think she did like three jujitsu classes. So it was her choice to go back to Muay Thai and I just sort of tagged along. That said, that would probably be what my first choice would have been anyway. Um, I signed up originally for the jujitsu and never thought I would set foot in a ring. Um, and then just sort of tried Muay Thai out of morbid curiosity and the learning curve was a lot steeper for me in Muay Thai. I fell down doing the most practical pull for, for like the first month. That's all I did was like fall and make people laugh, including myself, because it was just comically absurd how little I could do anything. But then at some point it clicked. And the sparring was similar. It was always a challenge for me. But I really love replicating the patterns of strikes and combos. Um, and that is where I flourished. I had also, because I turned into a fitness nerd for some reason in the zeros, was really just good at powering through rounds and feeling stronger than everybody else in the class. Um, so that was satisfying even when I couldn't punch them because that process took a little more out of me. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just—it makes more sense in my body. It, it was more fun for me, and also I think it hurt less. Which, in all fairness, I wasn't doing a lot of full contact sparring, and maybe I would feel differently if that were the case. But I don't know. Jiu-Jitsu gives me this full body ache for days after, and Muay Thai is just like, oh, I got punched. I got a bruise somewhere. I'll get over it. If you do write a fight memoir sometime, you should call it, it was fun even when I didn't punch them in the face, the Sarah Kerchak story. <laughs> yeah. 
born in North Carolina, based in Bellingham, Washington. Broadcast on WHUPLP. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. So you mentioned like one. You mentioned pattern recognition, and I think this is a really powerful thing about martial arts generally. And I've actually talked to professional video gamers who tell me that that it reminds them who, who made the transition to, to MMA mm-hmm. that say the pattern recognition is one of the things that 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 they find is the common denominator and is satisfying. So I mentioned the, the interface with something very nerdy, video games. But but let's talk a little bit about professional wrestling, which is another one of your passions, as you mentioned. Yeah. What do you think the commonalities are between worked fights like wrestling and shoot fighting like MMA? And what are the main differences and how does that play into your respective love for each? I think at heart, it's the same nerds are generally attracted to both. And I think, I mean, it's the same thing as someone who loves documentary filmmaking, but also loves narrative fiction filmmaking to me. all sort of the same medium in a way, but one is just naturally observed and maybe presented in a certain context. Um, and the other is takes what you can see in the real world and turns it into its own like narrative truth of the sorts that might tell us more about real life than the real version does. Um, and that's definitely what appeals to me about all of it, because in the end, whether or not something is real, it's all stories, it's all narratives that tell us something about our lives. Um, as for the differences, I mean, other than the obvious, that one's real and one's so-called fake, um, is that I think there is a strain of, of, and I would say particularly this is an MMA fan thing as opposed to just general combat sports issues, although I'm sure there's some in everyone is that something I started coming up against a lot in the mid-zeros and late-zeros when I was training and sort of drifting away from professional wrestling but still cared about it was the whole, oh, you know, it's fake, right? It's stupid. And I think, I mean, it was weird to me because I came to mixed martial arts from a professional wrestling fandom context. And everyone I knew who had started liking martial arts around the same time, MMA around the same time that I did, had that that same window and that same respect. And it seemed, you know, sort of interchangeable and cool in a way. I mean, we all knew who Minoru Suzuki was, and we all knew he was in both worlds. And even in North America, we had stuff like Ken Shamrock. Um, So I thought there was a lot more movement between the worlds than there ended up being in the people I was training with. Um, and then the pe- a lot of the people who were reading my fight line and stuff in the early days. Um, and I just, I think there's this weird insecurity <laughs> existential crisis. I'm really going to go down a rabbit hole on this one. Um, I think the idea of taking mar- MMA, which is often held as this, unquestionable, undisputed truth-telling. The two people in her cage, and then there's one victor, and there's no gray area. So people were looking for some sort of semblance of like black and white truth in the world can cling to that. And to take the context of that and turn it into a story, I think, threatens 
promise of truth in a way that really freaks them out. And I also just think it's something that I came across a lot in my writing was people who were mad at me and said, you can't call yourself an MMA writer because you don't write about what happens in the cage. And all they wanted was, you move this foot three inches to the right, which there, there's a market for that. I respect Jack Black and Robin Black and writers who actually tackle that stuff. But they, that can't be the entirety of what we write about in martial arts. And I think part of that comes from the fact that we treat entertainment and fiction and storytelling and sports as completely separate entities that have like their own sections in the newspaper. And one is sort of dismissed as feminine. And then one is like hyper-masculine and true. Um, and the fact that professional wrestling sort of crosses those boundaries, breaks out dudes who have gone to MMA to be the toughest bros because you've brought like soap opera storytelling into it. So it's, it's because it threatens people's masculinity and truth and like promise of purpose in our meaningless world that there is any division between MMA fandom and professional wrestling fandom. I think that's super insightful, and I assume that you've read the McFoley book, that wrestling is real, the whole world is fake. Yes. <laughs> and and yeah, like it, it's interesting that you know, as someone that grew up watching and loving wrestling, to have it dismissed yeah. as you know, quote fake unquote, I always feel like the guy in the YouTube video. It's still real to me. Oh yeah, like well, I mean, I find more truth in narrative filmmaking than documentary filmmaking, even though I respect dogs. And, like, some of the most epic professional wrestling storylines, especially some of the stuff you're seeing in New Japan right now, is just, like, absolutely life-defining, important work that addresses, like, the true narratives of our lives. And, I mean, you, you, you're talking about the Golden Lovers, probably, but probably something other than the Golden Lovers as well. I would say primarily I'm talking about uh, Tetsuya Naito's journey right now with LIJ and going from sort of like this promised stardust genius golden bullet to like a complete failure to coming back with Los Ingo Bernablas um, and being sort of this, like stereotypical anti-hero to someone now who is learning that like anti-heroism and pissing off the man isn't enough and he cares for his misfit LIJ family but he also still wants to be the anti-hero and trying to find that balance between like caring too much, not caring enough, and trying to find a purpose. It, and so, like, going from, essentially, you trained really hard and were promised for one future that just didn't work out because the world's not like that anymore. And then you try to seek solace in, like, the walls and the memes and the, you know, screw the man. But then you realize that's not enough, and you try to find, like, love and support and try to figure out your balance between, like, necessary rebellion against establishments that no longer make sense, an earnest love and family, which means, and that's why I want to argue that Naito is the millennial icon of our time. You mentioned, you know, the difference between, you know, how narrative filmmaking and documentary filmmaking are kind of two sides of the same coin, and you see the same that in, in you know, worked fights versus shoot fights. I'm wondering, when you watch wrestling, and when you watch wrestling storylines, are you more a promo person, more an in-ring storytelling person, or do you feel like the two can't be separated from each other and it's all part of the same storyline? I was definitely attracted to the promos, most of all, when I started. Um, and, and that's why I wanted to be a wrestler, was just to shoot off my mouth. Um, but I, I do think it's pretty much 
inseparable. Um, the, the best wrestlers are the ones that are capable of telling bold stories and having them be sort of a cohesive whole so that, you know, you, you listen to what they're saying, you can actually see it unfold in the ring and around the ring. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's all inseparable and part of the incredible and unique package of professional wrestling. Do you have, you mentioned a couple, uh, but I'm wondering if you can identify some of your favorite wrestling moments of all time. Maybe when you first got into it and you were like, I don't understand why my, my husband is into this and then take it to today. Like, are there, are there particular moments or storylines that stand out to you over your years of, of watching wrestling? Yeah. And, um, I think probably I need to clarify first. These are, these are personal and I realize that these are not going to be the most iconic by any means. Um, I was on the floor for WrestleMania 18 for The Rock versus Hulk Hogan, and I saw the mythical rebirth of Hollywood Hulk, and I was unmoved. It was not for me. I respected it was a huge moment in wrestling. I saw everyone around me losing their shit and super happy, and I was like, oh, that's good for them. You know, wait, me with Jericho's in the main event, or <laughs> when I get to see Trish Stratus. Um, so... Yeah, these are not going to be what I think anyone else would say are great moments. So let's see. Three moments from when I started watching wrestling would be um, when Trish Stratus turned heel at WrestleMania 20. Uh, that was... I wrote poetry about that. I was... <laughs> Trish Stratus was the only face I loved, and I only liked her as a face because I just had such a like obsessive, long-ranging crush on her. She was sort of like that bisexual dream girl where you don't know if you want to be her or be with her. And it's just like, she is why I started lifting weights. She, she was everything to me, but she was a good girl, so that wasn't my greatest thing. So when she turned on Jericho and aligned with Christian at WrestleMania 20, and all she did was like part her hair differently afterwards and change her posture slightly, and I was like... This is how guys in movies feel when the girl takes her ponytail down and takes her glasses off and sees the true beautiful her. It was just absolutely epic. And I think Trisha's heel work is still wildly underappreciated because just beautiful. Um, there was a moment in which I would say up until recently was my favorite feud of all time, The Rock and Jericho. Um, I think it was leading up to their match, whatever the January pay-per-view was called in like 2001 or 2002. Um, and it wasn't even one of their better exchanges because obviously you put the two of them on the mic together, they're incredible. Um, but it was a title defense. I'm probably getting a lot of the details wrong now. Um, where The Rock just wasn't taking Jericho seriously as a challenger. Um, and I think well, The Rock and sort of like everyone in the stands had pretty much assumed that his victory was a given and he was just doing like typical standard Rock stuff. And instead of coming back with a super lippy comeback as he's very capable of doing, Jericho was like almost in tears and just stopped him. And screamed, no, no, this is not a joke. 
I'm not a joke, you stupid son of a bitch, and you will not walk past me. It was just this really cool moment of, like, complete anger and exasperation and just the vulnerability from someone I had worshipped for his ability to just say really snide things, um, which really spoke to me as a former bullied kid who, you know, still got really upset about being overlooked, but had learned to cover everything up with a sly grin and a, you know, cutting remark. I want to break in and say that Jericho is one of my all-time favorites, and I have a lot of the uh, fond memories from that Jericho rock feud. And Chris Jericho uh, has a great podcast called Talk is Jericho, which uh, is something he's always meant to do anyway, where he talks about a lot of those memories as well. And, uh, you know, in 2001, nobody knew podcasting was going to be a thing. But if we did, we would say Chris Jericho in 2018 will have a great podcast. You know, that's absolutely true. Um. Up until like a month ago, I would have said he was my favorite of all time. Who has taken that top spot? Hiromu Takahashi. For a long time, I was like, you know, Kurt Jagged is too early in your fandom to make these choices. Um, but I guess it was in the lead up to Dominion when Jericho showed up to attack Naito. And I was like, oh, my favorite of all time has showed up in my new obsession because I just started watching New Japan in, I guess, late January, early February. And so. Naito was all bloody in the ring, and Evil and Sonata were holding Jericho back while Bushi and Hiromu were looking over Naito, and Jericho kind of broke free and was rushing toward Naito again, and it was like 6 a.m., and I was watching New Japan Pro World streaming on my laptop while my husband and Kat were sleeping, and I just out loud screamed, don't you dare touch him at Jericho, and realized, like, in that moment, the torch had been passed. I haven't thought about my own pro wrestling moments, although, because it's not me being interviewed, but I would also say the Man of 1004 Holds promo would definitely be in my top three list. Oh, God, yeah. That was that was before my time, but once YouTube started, like, being a thing, and, and also my Aaron, my husband, would tell me all about the glory days of WCW era Jericho, and fill me in as much as he could from memory. So I would go look up those promos when YouTube was first a thing and fill myself in on all things Jericho. And, oh, I wouldn't say this is a moment so much as one match that I really loved seeing live, and it was just this throwaway match at a SmackDown taping in Toronto, and I can't even remember what year it was. But it was Eddie Guerrero and Ultimo Dragon. And it was just like seven minutes of pure joy for me because I was... Jericho was my favorite wrestler, but in terms of, like, actually what I loved in the ring, Ultimo Dragon was my number one for quite a lot. And just getting to see him with Eddie Guerrero in his, like, late prime was such a thrill. Hey, Betsy O'Donovan. Yes, Jeff Shaw. You know I'm a big fan of the right bag for the right purpose. I am, in fact, aware of your giant bag collection. It's true. I do have a lot of bags. But my favorite new bag is this one I got from Gold BJJ, which I've been taking to training, which I've been taking on hikes, and which I've been taking around town, even for grocery shopping. It's got features that make it perfect for all of those things, including the one thing I'm a big fan of, which is this expandable gi pouch so that after training, when your gi is wet, you can keep it separated and your gi stays wet and nasty while everything else in your 
your bag stays dry and clean. <laughs> Another great thing about the bag is that listeners of Dirty White Belt get a discount. Just go to goldbjj.com and enter Dirty White Belt 10 at checkout. Don't forget the Gold BJJ guarantee. Every product they make, including this backpack, their geese, their soap, is guaranteed for a year. They have a no-hassle, no-questions-asked return exchange and guarantee policy. If I'm being really honest, I actually love this bag, too. So um, instead of fighting over it, I think I'm going to get another one. Well, you can get your own at goldbjj.com. Just don't forget to enter Dirty Wet Belt 10 at checkout. Thanks to Gold BJJ, and thanks to all of you for supporting the companies that support this show. Yeah, Ultima Dragon uh, his, uh, is one of the, the best workers ever, and I always loved that lucha style. Uh, a funny story, like one of the other podcast guests, uh, you know, you got into jujitsu from a pillow fight league. A lot of people do not know this, even in North Carolina, but Shayla too, one of the best jujitsu competitors in North Carolina, got into jujitsu after working with me on a luchadora's troop. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm not supposed to, but I probably shouldn't bust identities or whatever, but as far as people know, she was a manager or something. Okay. So, yeah, I totally understand and respect that journey. So you mentioned a couple times, like on a serious note, you, you know, not in the Lance Storm, if I could be serious for a minute, <laughs> serious note, but like you mentioned being bullied. And so I'm wondering, you know, and, you know, and, and that was a challenge for you, obviously. And, and yeah. so I'm, I'm curious about how you worked through that, um, whether martial arts on balance helped you address work through that. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and if you would have advice for younger people that find themselves in that situation. Oh, God, I'm not sure I have worked through it. Like, I have been not bullied in my daily life for at least six times as long as I was bullied. I'm probably doing bad math there. Um, it's not a it math podcast, a, thankfully. Yeah, it was such a, a short period of my life, but unfortunately it, it tends to happen at a formative age when you're supposed to be learning social skills. So if you're bullied as a kid, all of your social skills are warped by the idea that you deserve it or that you're weird. You learn a lot of self-hate, but you also just, like you grow up like a gazelle, I guess. Like you're always anticipating predators instead of just anticipating people. Um, So, your brain is completely wired differently than someone who hasn't gone through that. And even though I'm like over the trauma and it's only been like since I get my thirties that I've been able to go to my hometown and go outside without looking perfect because I might run into a bully and I need to prove to them I'm better now or that I can be in the same room as one of my bullies and not throw up. Like the first time I ran face first into the one of them and felt nothing, I was so excited. I like went home and wrote a long form essay about how Bruce Springsteen had helped me through that. <laughs> yeah, so I don't have any good advice for anyone who's going through it other than, you know, don't blame yourself for all of it because that's going to come back and bite you in the ass more than you ever know. And even though you're going to see everyone as a predator and everyone as a potential bully for years to come, you've 
you just sort of have to be a little bit guileless and embrace your earnestness and pride because, you know, irony and deflection will make you feel really tough when you're a kid and make them look like they're not hurting you, but it, you can't live your entire life that way. I think that's good advice too. Have you considered grabbing a pillow and pillow armbarring them or possibly inventing a pillow smother? Well, the smother was my move. It was called learning through osmosis because I was cerebellum, the scholar of pillow fighting. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm actually, I'm working on an essay about that right now, how it turns out that my heel character that I built was just entirely me as the kid, the bully kid. It's like, oh, everyone hated that in school. It's going to be the best heel work ever. And then I sort of learned to embrace her again. You know, in, you join a pillow fight league. Create a persona that's just you as a bully kid. You mentioned the essay that you're working on. And you mentioned yeah. earlier in the interview you're working on a book proposal about a series of your essays. Yeah. What other writing projects do you have that folks can look for um, in the coming months and, and years? I really have to get back on track. I've had a summer where I'm just writing for the Asian World of Martial Arts blog, which you can go look at and see both, you know, pretty, like, just basic informative articles about karate belts and stuff like that, but also just a lot of the same sort of intersection of culture and martial arts stuff that I was doing at Fightline still continues over there. Um, and I also get to interview and profile their sponsored athletes who are just all, like, kids between 10 and, say, 18, who are brilliant and self-possessed and successful and will make you feel like a complete failure as a martial artist and human being, <laughs> but are just really, really cool and great to keep up on because they're just so inspiring and brilliant. Um, and I'm going to be so proud to say I was able to interview them for their first sponsor when they're all famous martial arts movie stars. Um other than that, uh, yeah, I have to get back on track. I'm hoping that the essay I was talking about, um, about Cerebellum and Rediscovering My True Self, should be up in the next few months. Um, and then I have to start pitching again because, yeah, I have no projects in the offing right now. But if you want to see my past work, you can find it at um, CBC, Hazlitt, I did a piece for Catapult a couple months ago about going to Port Marion and learning to be obsessive about the prisoner in a way that other people won't feel alienated by. Um, those would be the ones I'd recommend. We'll post some links to some of Sarah's work in the comments, so if you aren't familiar, you can get familiar. Sarah, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about, or anything that you think folks should know about you that we haven't covered in the interview? Hmm. Well, I did go with, like, the three pro wrestling moments that I love from when I started, but can we talk tackle some of the stuff I love now, other than the fact that I talked about how much I love Naito fights? That's a 100% yes. <laughs> All right. Um, so I brought up how much I love Hiromu Takahashi. I would say pretty much every single thing he has ever done would be one of my top moments. He is unlike anyone... I have ever seen, and I'm not even saying this is a wrestling fan so much as it's someone who's been professionally writing about culture for like half my life now, which is, yeah, I've been writing about it since I was 18, so I've been 36 now. Um, he's just 
I mean, he's fascinating in the ring to the point of making me really sort of worried about him, obviously realistically worried about him because he's out with a neck injury now. Um, but just in terms of charisma, in terms of the way he's used social media to forward, to push his persona forward and his work, um, his promos, everything he does is sort of unique and fascinating and astounding. And I am like completely fangirl obsessed with him. And even I am blown away by some of the stuff he comes up with. Just like whether it's frying chicken for his opponent at a press conference because he heard he liked chicken and then getting mad at the press for asking if he bought it because obviously he handmade it himself. To just some sort of the weird, like, existential crises they'll have backstage worrying about his fate in the universe. Um, there's just something unique and unseen, but also very relatable for anyone who is an anxious, possibly depressed creative. You go to a promo, you will find, like, three lines that will describe your terrible creative process if you're a creative. Um, so, him, and I haven't even gotten to the fact that he has a stuffed cat son and a stuffed cat grandson who also are part of his story. Absolutely brilliant and weird and I think he has a future in any medium he attempts. I am really, really compelled by whatever the hell is happening with Kazuchika Okada since losing the belt to Kenny Omega at Dominion. Um, he's got some sort of weird meltdown that might have turned around this morning. Um, where he has like new goth pants and red hair and he's bringing balloons out and he seems vaguely depressed and angry and not sure what he's doing with his life since he lost his one defining thing that made him the champ for over 700 days. But I think my favorite Okada moment and this point at which I started to find him really fascinating as a character beyond being who I think is the best professional wrestler alive right now in the ring was at Wrestle Kingdom 9, when he once again failed to defeat Tanahashi, whom I am also completely obsessed with, he, in fact, take pictures of him to my hairdresser every time I get my hair cut now. <laughs> <laughs> I literally have Tanahashi's hair cut. Anyway, he failed to defeat Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom 9, and he, like, not like, manly teared up after, he started sobbing and collapsed on the walkway and kind of in one of his rare dick moments made fun of him and I, I've seen it in context of like watching all of Wrestle Kingdom 9 and watching it happen and I also have gifts of it I'll just sometimes watch because I'm fascinated by it because it's this really interesting moment in a character that has often been arrogant and impenetrable to watch this absolutely naked vulnerability and desperation in these like full body sobs and he's such a good subtle actor too that it's I think some of the most believable and incredible tears I've seen like in any medium so that moment has really struck out to me and then I guess the big one would be the Golden Lovers reunion which is another like emotionally vulnerable fascinating moment that I've watched many, many times. You know, we've always wanted to have a pro wrestling roundtable show and a couple of folks are after us to do that. And so I, I don't know how realistic this is, but we could definitely bring you back on to 
to be a part of our pro wrestling roundtable when we have well, I would be there whenever you want me. <laughs> we get on a plane to have you out there. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, I've had a blast interviewing you. I really want to thank you for making the time. Uh, you can follow Sarah's work at some of the, the links in the comments. We can, uh, and, and please good do go check it out. And we're looking forward to the, the book of essays when it comes out. Thanks to Sarah Kerchak for taking the time to talk to me. You can check out some of Sarah's work at the links in the comments, and be sure to read that Doctor Who Meets Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu article she did where she interviewed me. Hey, Masters Worlds is coming up in late August. If you're going to be there in Vegas, come say hi. We'd love to get more people on the show, so please feel free to send in suggestions for interviews as well. You can always get the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play. And if you want to get a hold of us to suggest show topics, email me at jeff at dirtywhitebelt.com. Our Instagram is Dirty White Belt, and our Facebook page is Cageside Radio. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.